welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Listening to today's podcast could save your life. I have as my guest, Bill McGee on. He is the newest columnist for Fromers.com. He is also a fellow with the American Economic Liberties Project. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for returning to the Fromer Travel Show. Absolutely, Pauline. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have a bad habit. I get into arguments on Facebook with people. And I recently got into a very silly argument with somebody who was claiming that New York City was was too dangerous to visit. I live in New York City. I I write a book about New York City. I have a you know I have a dog in this fight. I I don't think New York City is too dangerous. And I I also am constantly looking at the statistics, and I can tell you that just in the last year, the amount of violence, the amount of uh, danger, the amount of things going wrong has dropped precipitously. We're we're down. We're back down to low pre-pandemic numbers. But she just felt that way. I have a feeling that a lot of people right now feel like air travel is far more dangerous than it's been in decades. I mean, on the news, we've seen a plane bursting into flames on a runway in Japan. We've seen another plane have one chunk of it fall off in the air. Is this just people's feelings? Or is this a real problem? Is flying more dangerous than it was, say, pre-pandemic? Well, it's an excellent question, and it's one that I get all the time, particularly in the last couple of weeks, because we've had such a bizarre 2024 so far. Yeah. Let's hope, knock wood, that it uh, calms down. Uh, I'm going to give you two answers, really, because I think, you know, first of all, we have to acknowledge the statistical fact that, you know, you've heard it before, but it's, you know, it's truer than ever. Statistically, there is no safer way to uh, to get around. Whether it's you compare it to to rail or certainly to cars, etc. Uh, commercial aviation, particularly in the United States, is the safest form of transportation, and the safety record is overall been excellent. However, I said I was going to say two things. Yeah. The second part of that is when I was writing my book, Attentional Passengers, I spent months and months talking to to true safety experts, people that crunch the numbers and analyze the statistics. And they will say to you that there are different ways of measuring safety. And the safety record, obviously, it's important, but it is not the only way. You can also look at trends that are going in the wrong direction. And some of us have been talking about this, not just in recent months, but it, but for years now. And one of them has to do with you know, oversight, oversight of airlines, oversight of aircraft maintenance facilities, oversight of aircraft manufacturers like Boeing. There... We have a lot of work to do. Huh. As he said to me a couple of years ago, you know, the day before that uh, explosion in the Gulf of Mexico with, on the oil rig, um, the safety record was perfect. And yet there were signs that things were not good. There were whistleblowers and people that were running inside saying, you know, um, something's not right here. We need to do the same in aviation. There have been lots of whistleblowers. I've, sp- I've spoken to many of them at the FAA, at the airlines, at Boeing that are giving us warnings. We need to listen to them. Right. And what are those warnings based on? Are they based on the fact that things have changed, uh, either in terms of the passengers or in terms of the mechanics of a plane? Or is it that there's not enough inspectors or what, what specifically has changed? 
Well, uh, both, I would say. I would say there's a, there's a combination of factors. Look, when we look at Boeing, you and I have, uh, have been around the travel industry for a while, and we remember when Boeing was the gold standard around the world sure. for aircraft. I mean, there's just no, no, no question about it. Dating back to World War I, and Boeing's history is in many ways the history of aviation. It's, it's that important a company to the United States. And, you know, I'm going to be very blunt. Boeing has, has really uh, lost its way. And I'm not alone, of course, in saying this. Many others are too. But in the last 15 years or so, there's been this replacement, as, as everyone is noting, of an engineering run company, a company that deferred to its engineers, deferring to MBAs, worrying about the bottom line. And um, they are making decisions that are just awful. And they're not listening to their own engineers. That's the saddest part. And then couple that with the fact that the FAA, this is not a political knock, okay? I want to be clear about this. This is, this is going back decades. We have to go back to the Reagan administration. So if you're a Democrat or Republican and you want to politicize these things, well, there's plenty of ammunition on both sides. I really want to rise above that, quite frankly, because when something has been a problem for, you know, seven or eight presidential administrations, to me, it's not political. It's, it's right. systemic, you know. Yeah. And this is, an, this is an agency that has been underfunded and understaffed uh, basically for the entire 39 years that I've been in and around the airline industry. We have to address as a nation the fact that the FAA can't do its job because it doesn't have enough inspectors. And what it does in many cases is it designates Boeing employees to be the inspectors for the FAA. Well, that doesn't work. How can you work for a company and you know have them pay your mortgage? And at the same time, you have to tell them, by the way, there's a problem. We're going to have to halt production you know, while we get it straightened out. It's a formula that doesn't work. So really big picture, we need to address the FAA's uh, funding shortfall. Boy, oh boy, that's going to be tough. It mm. seems like you can't fund anything nowadays. No, I know. You know, my, my argument would be, well, we sure find money for other things, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if when something happens, we're all going to, you know, get up in arms as we should and say, hey, you know, what's going on here? We need to, we need to keep that anger and keep that focus to get this straightened out because, you know, uh, this is a, an issue, as I say, that's been going on for more than 40 years. Right. So you said you didn't want to get political, but maybe we have to. Maybe we have to tell our representatives that our lives are at stake when we fly and we want proper inspections being done. Right. No, absolutely. And when I, when I said, you know, you, you're absolutely right. It is a political issue. In the end, it's going to be the White House and Congress that has to decide these things. And of course, that's political. My, my only point was that, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to point fingers and say, well, it's Biden's fault or it's Trump's fault or it's, you know, well, then you have to go back to Reagan, you know. So right. Right. At what point does it just get absurd to say, well, it's, you know, it's one party or the other, you know, um, this is a systemic problem. No question right. about it. But we're not telling people not to fly. I'm going to continue flying. I'm going to be flying to the Denver Travel and Adventure Show this weekend. So, you know, I'm flying halfway around the country. What can I as the individual do, not as the political actor, but as the individual, when I get on that plane? How can I be more Japanese? Because I, I was really amazed at, at how well all of those people got off that plane pretty quickly. Yes. And, um, you know, and that, that look, of course, as you know, that was the focus of, of the column that I wrote for, for you, for farmers. And, and um, you know, I think the biggest thing we can do is change our mindset. Every time I've written about this issue, and I've written about it over the years many times, um, some wise guy will always, you know, log in in the comments and say, oh, yeah, sure, survive a plane crash, ha-ha, you know, I'd like to survive flying into the side of a mountain. 
Well, that's the attitude that, in fact, it's not just a wrong attitude. It's not just that, that, that they're wrong on this issue. It's a dangerous attitude because if you get on an airplane thinking, well, it's all or nothing, either we're going to land safely and off I go, or, you know, we're all going to die. That's the wrong attitude. The fact is, statistically, and, and Boeing has, has, does a, an annual analysis where they go back to the beginning of the jet age in 1959, and they look at, at fatal accidents. And what they have found is that um, and the National Transportation Safety Board has done this as well is that, you know, increasingly more and more people are surviving airline accidents, serious airline accidents that in the past undoubtedly would have had, uh, would have been fatal or would have had higher death tolls. There are multiple reasons for this. One of them has to do with the technology has gotten better, not only in avoiding accidents, but in getting us off the plane. Um, there was a time where all of the materials in the cabin were very flammable. And, you know, I used to read NTSB reports and there would be an accident and X amount of number of people would survive the accident, but they would die of smoke inhalation or fire because they couldn't get off. Now, we, the FAA uh, has a rule that you're supposed to evacuate an airplane in 90 seconds. Those 90 seconds, that's life and death. And right. so um, there's a lot that you can do individually. And I think, you know, as I said, first of all, changing your attitude. But there are other smaller things you can do. I see people get on an airplane for a long flight. And before they even finish boarding, before the, the overhead bins are closed, they've got their shoes off, they're in a blanket, they're in their jammies, and they're uh, popping a, uh, you know, a tranquilizer and having a glass of champagne and putting on eye shades and earplugs. No, no. Um, statistically, it's been proven overwhelmingly more than two-thirds of accidents occur at the very beginning and very end of the flight. That is, take off up until, uh, you know, you... Uh, you, uh, you reach altitude and on landing. Those are the times you need to be aware. You shouldn't be, you know, under the, uh, under the uh, influence of alcohol or any kind of, you know, drugs that are going to put you to sleep. And stay aware of your surroundings. Listen to the flight attendant. And I know every frequent flyer says, oh, I don't need to listen to, to the briefing. I don't need to read the uh, evacuation card because I've, you know, I've got, I'm a platinum member and I've got a million miles. You don't know exactly what row you're sitting in, do you? Uh, you know, if, if there is smoke in the cabin, you need to know if you're four, four rows or five rows from the nearest exit. You, you know, know, that's my habit. I, I don't know if I learned this from you, Bill, but the, the only thing I do during the safety briefing, and I got to admit, I phase out. Because, uh, you know, I've heard it so many times. But what I do do is I look around and I figure out which exit is closest to me. And then I count the rows so that I can be, if it's dark, I can, I can count the seats in front of me. And I do take note of that. Right. And, you know, uh, how you dress is a factor too. We just had the anniversary last week, the 15th anniversary of what's often called the Miracle on the Hudson, the U.S. Airways flight with Captain Sully on the Hudson River. That flight was going to North Carolina, I believe. Imagine if it had been going to Florida. You could pretty much guess that a flight leaving New York, LaGuardia in January, going to Florida, and have a whole bunch of people in flip-flops and shorts and tank tops because they think they're going to Fort Lauderdale where it's 85 degrees. Well, do you want to be in the Hudson River uh, in January in in a tank top and shorts, right? And and when it comes and footwear is particularly important. Um, Flip-flops are not what you want to wear on an airplane if you're going down the evacuation slide. Spiked heels are not what you want to wear going down an evacuation slide. And uh, natural fibers and cottons, if you're going to be in an environment 
with smoke and, and fire. Look, I'm not trying to scare people. I, I get it. I have a whole section in my book on fear of flying. I've never had it because I've worked for some really bad airlines, so I wouldn't have been able to do my <laughs> job if I had it. Um, but I get it. I get it. I, I have friends and family say, oh, you know, I don't like to talk about this. Well, we do have to talk about it. I'm not trying to scare people. I'm not saying you have to be, you know, that you have to be uh, in a bad frame of mind to get on an airplane. But just use common sense. There are some, there are some tips, you know, as, as we outlined in the column, that can save your life or save the lives of your loved ones. Yeah. Okay. So just to count them down very quickly, keep yourself aware on takeoff and landing. You don't want to be out of it. Wear the right shoes. You want to wear closed-toed shoes. You don't want to wear spiked heels. You want to wear natural fibers because they're less flammable, right, than, exactly. than synthetics. Did I miss anything else? Is there yeah, anything else? Well, I think, you know, the, one of the most important things of all, uh, when we look at what happened in uh, Tokyo a couple weeks ago, that was, uh, you know, the, the outcome was, was couldn't, couldn't have been better, basically. There were no serious injuries and no fatalities. And when you see the photos of those flames, you know, you, you think, well, there, there must have been some, some deaths. But as good as it is, you know, to sort of say, well, you know, all's well that ends well, it did take longer than it should have. Quite frankly. How long did it take? Do you know? It took, yeah. Well, in one in one report, it said it took more than fifteen minutes. Oh, boy. that's a heck of a lot more than ninety seconds. Yeah. Now, again, in the end, the result was great. One of the things that we cannot stress enough, we have to say in all caps, is do not stop to retrieve any personal belongings. Oh, yeah. You may say, well, it's only going to take me three seconds to open the overhead bin and get my laptop. Those three seconds could kill someone. I mean, that's the only way you you can phrase this, and the only way you can think of it. If eight people all stop to get their laptops, they could kill 16 people. That's how we have to look at it. Those 90 seconds are precious. Every living thing on the airplane has to get off that airplane. No laptop, no carry-on. And by the way, if you, if you drag a carry-on with you down a slide, you're likely to puncture the slide or you're likely to hurt somebody that gets hit with it. Um, that's, that's important. So that, that's one key thing. The other thing is, please, if you have a child under two, we could do a whole show on this. Um, make sure they're in a restraint. Every safety expert in the world agrees that um, a lap child um, is in danger during Ooh, turbulence or during you know, any kind of emergency. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about that one because we know statistically that, that driving is so much more dangerous. And for so many families, the ability to have the child on the lap makes the difference between them being able to afford a flight or afford a, a car or have to drive it. I mean, with that in in part of the equation, does doesn't that change things at all, or no? Um, I disagree, and I, okay. I know what you're talking about. It actually has a name. It's called the diversion theory. The yeah. FAA came up with it a few years ago. And by the way, they never actually did the research to prove statistically how many people are actually going to do that. So it was a rare case of government imposing a policy without doing the the homework necessary. But having said that, look, you could make the same argument with people not being able to afford a car seat in a car. Every state in the United States has car seat laws and has since the 1970s. The bottom line is it, it has to be a cost of flying. Look at what happened over Portland last week with Alaska Airlines when that hole opened. Thankfully, there was no lap child nearby. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I've done the research and I've talked to the experts. And one physics professor said to me, unless you're from the planet Krypton, you cannot hold on to a child in the air with those G-forces, you know, at that altitude, et cetera. 
um, because you know no matter how much you can uh, you can bench press, you you, you are not strong enough. Right. And you know um, we saw the, a, a young man, a teenager, who was in the row in front. The clothes were literally ripped off his back. You, yeah. you, I'm sure you saw those reports. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was, you know, horrifying. Imagine that if there had been someone in that row that was holding an infant. Um, and by the way, it doesn't, you know, I know people say, I can't uh, put the kid in a car seat for eight hours. Nobody's asking you to do that. They're asking you when the seatbelt sign is on. Takeoff, landing, turbulence, emergencies. And that's right. what we're talking about. Right. Well, all excellent advice, and not just on this show, but also on Fromers.com. Thank you so much, Bill, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, every time I come, I enjoy coming, Paul. Our next guest is Alan Feldstein of Infinite Safari Adventures. And you can probably tell from the name of his company what we're going to discuss. Hey, Alan, lovely to have you on the Fromers Travel Show. It's great to be back with you again, Pauline. Thanks very much for having me. So I was reading recently that we are seeing record numbers of people taking safaris right now, or maybe it's that they're paying record amounts. (laughs) Which is it? Has safaris gotten more expensive as all travel has seemed to do, or is it that a lot more people are doing this type of activity uh, or planning to do it in 2024. It's actually both, Pauline. Um, You know, I think part of it is, is that after COVID, after the pandemic, a lot of the properties and tourist folks in Africa had not had any income for several years and they're trying to, you know, make some of that back. I think that's part of it. But also there's been a tremendous boom about travel and travel to Africa which I'm very excited about. In fact, I tell clients that one of my biggest challenges is finding space for them. So I tell them to, you know, better to plan further on ahead. Like I'm talking to clients now for 2025, but I had a a woman call me about three, four weeks ago saying, I have these tickets and I'm going to be in Kenya in February. Can you put something together for me? And we were successful, but it was a challenge to, to find space. Wow. So Kenya obviously is one of the big places people go. Uh, Tanzania is probably on a par with Kenya. Actually Uh, more. More. Interesting. My daughter was in Uganda last summer and did a small uh, safari there, which is something I didn't even know was available in Uganda. Are you seeing people broadening where they're going? Because, I mean, maybe they have to since so many safaris right now are are booked and booked so far in advance. It's a really good question, Pauline. I I think it's two things. Number one is is that like Tanzania has grown exponentially. um, um, And so it's become the most popular destination in Africa, South Africa being second, Kenya, I think, being third and all. I, I see people wanting to do the traditional safaris in Tanzania and Kenya and all that, but then people who want to expand their horizons or who have been on safari before, because a lot of people are repeating trips, they're going oh. back to Africa. So they're looking for new places. I'm very excited about Zambia. Oh. Um, Zambia, home of the walking safari. Um, oh, wow. which so you, you actually get out of the vehicle. Get out of the vehicle and walk and you can 
combine it with seeing Victoria Falls on the Zambian side, and then it's an easy plane ride to Cape Town, South Africa, for people who want to do some food and wine at the end of their at the end of their trip. Well, before uh, I, before we leave the walking safari, how do you do that safely? You do it with the guides and a ranger who has a rifle who um, is is you know just there to be safe, but it's just staying out of the animals animals way. They really don't care about you that much and you hmm. give them respect of their space and stuff. And if there was a problem, the first rifle discharge is in the air and that usually would scare off any animal that was interesting that was problem. Yeah. And but that, it's very exciting to be out on the, on foot there. I would think that also means that, I mean, when I was in Tanzania, we didn't find this on our uh, second and third days, but on our first day, it felt like we were following the other safari folks more so than the animals. You know, we would find out that a bunch of, we would see in the distance a, a group watching a leopard in a tree or, or you know, seeing something and we'd all crowd around, which gave it kind of a zoo-like aspect. Actually, uh, that didn't happen later in my trip. I think we started uh, the trip in a, in a very popular area and then went to private parks. So I'm assuming that doesn't happen on walking safaris, but how do you actually see the animals? Do you get to see as many? You do. And, and I've seen, you know, last time I was there in August in Zambia, we went walking and we had elephants playing with, in the river just below us and stuff. And we sat on the riverbank which was pretty high up and, and watch them frolic in the water, which was very magical. But you also raise a very good issue and a very good point. One of the debates going on in the industry right now is balancing the number of people who come to visit and also there being too many vehicles and it not being fair to the animals. And it's huh. one of the great debates. And again, each country in Africa handles it in a different way. You know, for example, in Botswana, they limit the number of bed nights uh, beds in each area of the Okavanga Delta. Good news is, is there's very few people around, um, right. but it tends to make safaris in that area more expensive because of supply and, and demand. I right. think the other thing too is, is when choosing a tour operator like myself is ask them about their guides. You know, I'm very proud of our guides. You can read about them on, on TripAdvisor with me. They know how to stay out of most people's ways and find things that, you know, they're not, they're not the crowd followers as, as, as other guides are sometimes, or sometimes are. And that's, that's oh. another thing to look at in planning and choosing your safari. Right. So, so I kind of interrupted you. You were saying that Zambia is a, is a, a newly popular destination because you can do different things. Give us some other examples of places where you're not just going to have the typical vehicle safaris of some other countries. Well, a lot of it depends. And, and I'm going to apologize before we start. My assistant, my dog assistant, is always seems to want to play with squeaky toys when <laughs> I'm doing an interview. So No worries. I, that gives us kind of a safari sound. Exactly. Not, not really, but oh well. <laughs> I think a lot of, there's lots of unique experiences to, to do. Some are very typical and traditional, like a hot air balloon ride over the Serengeti, for example, and stuff. But again, one of the things that I pride myself on in, in the company is looking for new experiences for people. For example, I've had clients go out and sedate and 
collar rhinos in South Africa, you know, as part of an anti-poaching experience. Visiting um, an elephant walk in Zambia is another thing near the falls. There's a herd of elephants that are uh, watched there by keepers 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they're very habituated to humans. So you can go take a walk with elephants, which is really an incredible experience. Amazing. Uh, so, yeah, so there's the, the um, you know, a chance to walk with elephants. There's visiting some of the conservation work that's going on there. There's the opportunity to go scuba diving in Zanzibar and Mozambique. So, you know, there's so many things to do on the continent of Africa besides seeing wildlife. And a lot of it just depends on what your interests are and asking oh. your tour operator, hey, in addition to seeing wildlife, you know, I want to go visit a local community or I want to go see some of the anti-poaching initiatives that are going on there or some of the conservation things. And, and a good tour operator should be able to help you accomplish that. But you have to remember how big Africa is. When I was planning my Tanzania trip, I kind of said, you know, off the cuff, oh, and I'd love to add in South Africa. <laughs> well, that's 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 a, like a whole continent away. It's it would have been a massive amount of travel added onto it. So we didn't end up doing it. I guess we could have, but it just didn't seem to make sense time wise. It doesn't, you know, and that's a really good point. You know, three United States will fit in the continent of Africa, and wow. you know, I have people who call me and say, "Okay, I want to go see this migration in the Serengeti. I want to go to Cape Town. I want to go to Victoria Falls, and I want to." go to Mozambique or Malawi or someplace. Well, that's like saying, I want to go to Washington, New York, California, and Hawaii. And, oh, I only have 10 days to do that. You know, so, <laughs> right. so I say, you know, I do custom trips in 12 countries in Eastern and Southern Africa and pick one of those areas. And I also, you know, something for clients to think about is an elephant doesn't know whether it's in the Maasai Mara or in the Serengeti. So there's really no need they border each other. There's really no right. need to go to both. You uh -huh. know, what you're really, your goal is to, to maximize your game viewing time is pick one place and, and, and do quality over quantity. Right. Now, in addition to being a tour operator, you also run a foundation. Uh, tell our listeners about that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. So I'm a big believer in giving back. Um, you know, the people in Africa are so wonderful and all. And there was a terrible drought in Kenya and a couple of years ago, and I helped feed 1,500 Maasai um, wow. who were basically starving. And at that point in time, a friend of mine said, you know, you should really start a foundation. And it hit me. So my wife and I funded a foundation. But what we do is we donate a portion of every safari to the foundation in the client's name. And then we take that money and we use it for educational, humanitarian, conservation initiatives in Africa. So this year, we are sending a Kenyan girl to beautician school so she can earn a living. We are doing conservation work with the Cheetah Conservation Fund, which I'm on the board of directors for. Saving the Survivors, which is a rhino conservation organization. We bought a laptop for the veterinarian in, in South Luangwa National Park. We funded a theater company um, in Zambia that goes to communities and teaches uh, AIDS prevention and other oh. things through through theater, which is just phenomenal, called Seka. And then I also support an anti-poaching initiative in Kenya 
uh, the Ogululi Rangers, which has an all-female ranger team called the Lionesses, who are extremely effective because they can go into a village, sit and chit-chat with the women and learn more in about 15 minutes than any ranger can go in and try and find out in about three days. So it's really really phenomenal in that way. And so, yeah, we're very proud. And I think anybody- What is the name of the foundation? It's called, thank you. It's called the Infinite Safari Foundation. And again, I think a big uh, question for people when choosing who to go on safari with is what kind of giving back does their, the people they're working with do? Sure. Because there's a lot of need in Africa. And I think a lot of people also want to make sure that they are not destroying the incredible nature sites they came to look at. So beyond going with you, how do you vet a safari operator to make sure that they're acting in a green way? Well, that's a very good question. And green is very important to people these days. And we do a lot of vetting that way as well. I mean, one of the exciting things is more and more camps are starting to go solar. There's actually in some places actually electric vehicles being used, which is very exciting and hope to see that more and more happening. We look at, you know, getting rid of plastic bottled water and giving people containers, you know, thermoses that they can use throughout their trip. All these sorts of using um, compostable materials for your box lunches when you go out on a picnic in the Mm. bush. All these things I think are very important. And, you know, it's a great point, Pauline. People are starting to ask those questions of me, which I'm happy that they're asking for because we're very proud of who we work with and vetting them to make sure they do handle things in an ecological manner. Right. Okay. Before I let you go, if somebody were to call you right now and want to plan a safari, you said it would probably have to be for 2025 or could they do it in 2024? And what season would they, because I know the season often pushes you to one part of Africa over another. So, yeah. so what, what would it be? The answer is we can certainly still do 2024. If you're going to do East Africa, then I would suggest somewhere in the June to October time period. November is one of the rainy seasons in East huh. Africa. So we want to we want to avoid that. In Southern Africa, I would say, you know, somewhere between April through December. January, February tends to be their summer. And it can be quite warm and also can be a little rainy in January and February. And also we're past, if people want to go to East Africa right now, it's a good time. But beginning March, April, May is another, is the long rains and it can be very rainy there. And this year we're in an El Nino effect. So we're expecting, we're expecting a lot of rain this year, which is a good thing. Yeah. Interesting. We ended up going in December, which I had been told wasn't a top time for Tanzania, but we loved it because it's it's a time when there were a lot of baby animals. Exactly. You were there during the green. The rains had just ended in November, and so yeah. things were probably very lush and green very and, lush. and a lot of babies being born and stuff. So it really no, was, December's a great time to go. In fact, many magical. of the Tanzanians travel in December. That's huh. their time to visit their parks. Interesting. Well, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you, Alan. Thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me, Pauline. It's a pleasure and I hope to see you soon. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. A reminder, 
Next weekend, I will be at the New York Travel and Adventure Show at the Javits Center. I'm speaking at 3 p.m. on Saturday, I think 1 p.m. on Sunday. So come late the first day and uh, hope to see a lot of you there. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Talk to you next week. Watching cable.